can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we'll just read real quick verses 24 and 25, and then uh, get into the study. Hebrews 10, 24 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Lord God, we pray over this fourth study in uh, the church series that we're doing uh, as we just look at the, uh, the beautiful dynamic of a church that loves each other and, and is thoughtful and mindful and prayerful of each other and uh, the duty and privilege of responsibility that goes towards us for each other Uh, in light of the gospel. And so, Lord, we just pray that um, where you need to convict us, where you need to confront us, where you need to straight up rebuke us, Lord, uh, that you would do so today. Um, Lord, that people wouldn't hear a demonstration or uh, uh, just wise speech or, or wise words from a man, but they would just see the Holy Spirit being demonstrated Uh, in power today. And so speak to us for our church and for your glory, God. Just change us and make us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we are in this fourth series on uh, the church, we have kind of broken down the the 10-week series into three categories of uh, the church's purpose and mission and vision, uh, that being a vision of upreach, uh, where we're worshiping the Lord and glorifying the Lord. And all that we do, we have the chief end of our church is to glorify God and bring him honor and to find ourselves like those in Revelation chapter 5, worshiping the Lamb and giving him honor and glory with one voice loud and lifted up before him, uh, worshiping him, glorifying him. Uh, Second purpose and mission vision is to uh, reach inward and and to love on each other and to edify each other and to build each other up. And all in the aim, again, of pointing towards Jesus and glorifying the Lord. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves uh, in these couple weeks is just uh, seeing how the Lord would have us reach in to the church and, and love on each other. Uh, having a, a common love and unity with one another. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at outreach, uh, just living out the Great Commission, being evangelists with the intent of making disciples. Uh, and so as we look at this in reach, we encourage you to listen to the studies that you may have missed over the last few weeks. Last week, we looked at the necessity of gathering together and being part of the um, uh, regular gatherings of this church. And uh, just with that, it's interesting as you look at all of the different images and pictures of the church in the New Testament. One man uh, who wrote a book, Images of the Church in the New Testament, go figure, uh, just counted them out that there were some 96 pictures of the church in the New Testament, metaphors of the church, descriptions of the church. Uh, you know a lot of them, uh, that the church is the flock of God, and he is the shepherd. We are the sheep. Um, We are the body of Christ, and he is our head. Uh, He is the vine, and we are the branches connected together to bear much fruit. 
Uh, we are a building, Paul tells the Corinthians, and, and uh, we, we are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are a family, brothers and sisters, with God as our Father. We are a people. Um, we are the, the uh, bride of Christ, one of the most beautiful, intimate pictures in Ephesians chapter 5. That Jesus is our groom. We are the bride and the intimacy that is available there for us. Uh, Peter and Paul both tell us that we are temples of the Lord. And Peter would go on to say we are temples made up of living stones, each one of us a living stone together, compiled and gathered together to make up the temple. As Charleston Jefferson, Charles Jefferson once said, the living stones have not abiding life unless built into the walls of a growing temple. And the more and more we're together, the more and more life that we find in God's purpose and design of the church. Um, one uh, pastor said that uh, even though there's this unity among all the pictures that we see in the New Testament, our American consciousness ha has found a rugged individual as the hero in virtually all of our great cultural narratives. And as you think about that, the movies that we watch, there's, there's you know, typically one guy or one gal that's just like the hero of the whole story. And as a result, one pastor wrote that the modern era, in the modern era, the focus shifted from the church to the individual. And on this point, the historian Mark Knoll says, up to the early 1700s, British Protestants preached on God's plan for the church. But from the mid-1700s on, however, uh, evangelicals emphasized God's plan for the individuals. The pastor would go on to say, uh, this is a tragic effect of modernism on the church life. Many people who claim to be Christians adopted by God the Father have nothing to do with their brothers or sisters in God's family, the church, even claiming that all they need is Jesus. And uh, we've heard that in our community of fellowship as people have left and said, I don't need you. I don't need this. All I need is Jesus. And, and we just see that's it's not the Lord's heart. It's not the vision that we see in the New Testament. Um, and so as we focus on the inreach during these couple uh, uh, sessions, uh, we'll see, man, the great necessity for gathering together and being together. Uh, the question was asked last week, kind of a confrontational question uh, that has two preface uh, questions. You know, first of all, do you know that you're a believer? Are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Are you regenerate? Um, are you, is Christ your Lord and your Savior? Have you had the old heart that was a heart of stone at one point replaced with a, a new heart that beats and pumps and knows God and is known by God? Have you been born again? Are you a Christian? And, and secondly, before we get into the big question, is do you consider this your church? Do you consider yourself a member, a part, an appendage of this church? And so if you're a believer and this is your church, the question is asked, what is your obligation to this church? What are your responsibilities? What are your duties to this church? Now, that's pretty confrontational, and a lot of us don't like the word obligation. You know, I don't need an obligation to nothing. And, and true that obligation can be bad. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about giving and financial giving and, and giving to those that are hurting. And he says, man, we should give not as a matter of obligation, but there's a word before that he uses, and it's the word begrudging. See, our, our obligation shouldn't be one compelled out of guilt, 
but rather we should be moved and propelled through grace. Uh, it's because of what Jesus has done for us, as we'll see in a lot of texts today, that we are moved and motivated to, uh, to be part of a local church and, uh, and have these wonderful obligations, these wonderful privileges, these wonderful responsibilities. You know, as you watch those old school westerns and the cowboy tips his hat to the lady and says, much obliged, ma'am. You know, uh, that word obliged means, man, I'm morally bound to this action or course of action in a way that doctors are obliged by law to keep patients alive while there's a chance of recovery. And we know that these doctors aren't, you know, they did this out of a, man, I, I get to do this. I don't have to keep that old lady alive. I don't have to keep her heart pumping. Man, what a, gosh, just get it over with. It's not at all their heart. There's this privilege. There's this wonderful sense of responsibility uh, on a doctor's sake. And so as we look in these weeks about our obligation to be connected to each other and to gather together and today to love on one another, when we would forsake this duty and revert back to a self-centered mentality, the end result is not much shorter than a scene that happened in Queens, New York back in 1964 when a woman named Kitty Genovese was slowly and brutally stabbed to death at least 38 uh, I want to say she was stabbed 38 times. That's not what happened. Slowly and brutally stabbed to death while 38 of her neighbors stood around and watched and didn't do anything about it. And at one point, the, the, uh, the murderer was frightened away and ran off, and yet the neighbors didn't call. At one point, in an hour and a half, they never called an ambulance. They never called the police. And so that brutal murderer came back and finished her off. And uh, this, in the 60s, maybe some of you remember this story, uh, it actually caused such an uproar that two young psychologists went out and did research onto what in the world would cause some 40 people to be around in the facility and know something was happened, like a, like a woman being stabbed to death, and yet do nothing, not even reach for a phone. And, and what happens is we just can so quickly and so easily become self-absorbed and, and selfish and inconsiderate of others. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the end. That's like a, that's an extreme of what can happen if we don't come before the Lord and allow Him to move us towards consideration of one another. A consideration that happens as we gather together. Now, as you look there in Hebrews chapter 10, we read verses 24 and 25, but we want to get a little more gospel context to what we studied. So let's look at verse 19 if you're there in Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that's his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, in these previous verses, in these verses 19 on, we have this beautiful picture of what God has done for us. In verse 19, notice we have unlimited access to God. 
I know that that doesn't seem big to us, but think about that. The creator of the universe who has made a way available, as we just read, through his body, through his flesh, he's made a way available through dying uh, on the cross for us. And it was there at the cross in Jerusalem on that day, Good Friday, when that great earthquake shook maybe the whole world, (laughs) but definitely shook Jerusalem so much so that inside the temple between the area where anybody could go and the holy place where only a high priest could go occasionally, um, that veil, that curtain that separated those areas was ripped from top to bottom, a beautiful symbol of how we, any one of us in Christ, can now enter into the presence of God. We have this unlimited access because of Jesus's body being ripped. Uh, The curtain was ripped, and now we have access. That is good, good news. It's a benefit. It's a privilege. Also in verse 21, we see we have advocacy with God. Jesus is our lawyer. 1 John 2, 1 tells us. It speaks of the powerful priesthood of Jesus Christ and that our salvation is grounded in our representative in heaven who ascended from the earth and is at the right hand of the Father and now he ever lives to be our defense attorney before God. He prays for us. He stands before us. He's our mediator. He's our advocate. And so we have these two beautiful, wonderful things that just today, Holy Spirit, help us to grasp how incredible this is, that we have unlimited access to God, woo, and we have a a lawyer that no matter what accusations come before him, and the enemy is bringing accusations, just like he did in Job's day, we have our defense attorney to say, innocent, not guilty, paid in full, my blood covers his sin or her sin sin. Beautiful, wonderful gospel things uh, that as scholars call them, they are redemptive indicatives, okay? Or to put it a little bit backwards, they indicate redemption, okay? They indicate salvation. And in this indication of salvation, We are moved then through that. We are moved through this good news. Look at verse 22. We are moved. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And so as Colin Brown refers to it, Colin Brown's a professor of theology at Fuller Seminary. He says all of this brings about affectionate incitement to one another. When you look at the gospel, we are just moved to verse 24 specifically for today. Consider one another in order to stir up love or good works. Love speaks of just our having the other person's good as the highest of our hearts. And and good deeds, one man called it the tangible expression of that love. And so all of these privileges, unlimited access, perfect advocacy, has at the result the wonderful privilege, the wonderful obligation, the wonderful duty, the wonderful responsibility of loving each other, of considering each other, of stirring up and spurring on and inciting and stimulating one another towards love and towards good works. This is a responsibility of every Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you have a responsibility, a duty to the local congregation to be part of this consideration. 
Check out all the personal pronouns there, like, and you might just underline it. We, us, 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 ourselves, one another. might be different in your translation, but there's a whole lot of corporateness in it. There's a whole lot of us being together, being affectionate to one another, considering one another together. This isn't just a ministry for the elders or the deacons. This is a ministry for every person in the church, whether you're naturally more an extrovert or whether you're a little bit more of an introvert. We have this beautiful obligation. This We're obliged to, ma'am. I'm obliged to consider you. I'm obliged to stir you up. A wonderful duty that I have in response of what Jesus has done for us. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, which is two, ver- uh, two books to the right. If my Sunday school years are still kind to me. I think it's two books to the right. Uh, we have 1 Peter. And in chapter 1, verse 22, notice, since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit... In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Because we have this purifying of our souls that's taken place through what Jesus has done, we can have a sincere love for the brethren, loving one another fervently. That means we're on fire loving each other. I love that word fervent. I tell you all the time, it's the welder in me that could take a big chunk of steel and touch an electric rod to it, and pretty soon that thing is boiling and bubbling and popping in a fraction of a second. That's how fervent that metal has become. And in the same way that we might go, not cold, but go hot, go on fire in a love for one another, fervently loving one another from a pure heart. And so we have in our Christianity now, in being born again, this wonderful fruit of duty to each other, to other Christians. As John tells us, and we'll get there in a little bit today, that uh, if God loved us, we ought to love another. We're our brother's keeper. It's a responsibility as us of Christians. And and secondly, in going into this uh, wonderful incitement or um, stirring one another that Hebrews 10.24 speaks of, it's to be intentional. This consideration that you read in verse 24 is to be intentional thought. That word incitement means intentional deliberation, purposeful, calculated, thoughtful, studied. You've prepared to do this for this brother or sister. You've prepared, you've thought of them. One translation of Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. And it's intensive form. This verb means you got to study these people and ponder these people and think about these people and work in care for these people. In the same way that in Hebrews 3, 1, we're told by whoever wrote it, Paul or Apollos or whoever it might have been. It says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, essentially. Consider Jesus or fix your gaze on Jesus. It's the same word that we're to do in Hebrews 10, 24. Consider one another. Fix our gaze on one another with the aim and with the end of stirring each other up towards love and stirring each other up towards good works. One commentator put it this way. It refers to a conscientious care and circumspection over the spiritual estate of other Christians. 
Have, has that ever been you? Praise God if it has. And I think that most of our church, there's, there's a beautiful thing going on in our body of this conscientious care, literally contemplating and thinking of the other people in the church. How can I consider them? How can I just be aware of their spiritual health and their physical health and what's going on in their life? For us and for you, it means that we give intentional, deliberate, purposeful, meaningful, calculated effort into considering one another's circumstances and struggles and temptations and weakness and sicknesses and needs, no matter what they might be. I like that calculated verb, you know, it was all calculated out on how we can best love and consider this individual. And so as we look across the board, that might mean on a Sunday, you're just looking around the room. You're aware of who's behind you. You're aware who's across the room. And you, man, Lord, what's going on in their life? And I recall hearing this about them. I'm going to pray for them right now. Something that I love and enjoy doing, and I'm sure it was the Lord that moved me to it, was go through the church directory and just spend time, maybe on your face, on your knees, just going through the church directory and praying over people, considering people. You'll be reminded of stuff that's going on in their life. I've also gone to our church Facebook page and just spent time going over the pictures of all of the church Facebook friends. And, and so many of you are on there and your face is on there. And I just pray over you and I'm aware of what's going on in your life. And Lord, what would you have? How can we aid? How can we assist this person? How can we help them out? You know, it might mean being just aware and sensitive to the people who come to this church that are single adults. You're so aware, man, when they come in, it might be awkward for them to be single and to come in here. And, and maybe there's a, a hole in their heart there. I want to be aware of that and pray for them. Encourage them in their singleness. Might be some, and, and they're in our church, that they come here and they have a spouse who's not a Christian. And I can't imagine the pain that that would be to uh, have a spouse that we don't have the most intimate thing in our life in common. The most powerful thing in our life. The thing that my life is all about. My spouse doesn't have that. And there are many single, or in a sense, you know, uh, people that come who have spouses that are not Christians. And, and if that's you, just know we pray for you at the Pulse regularly. Names of unsaved spouses come up and we are just crying out for that individual. Others is people with chronic illness and pain. And they're in our church and you probably don't know it. Man, do some, how can I help? Who's got pain? What can we do? How can we love on them? How can we pray for their healing? Can we... You know, get them some special oils or salve or something also to help contribute to comfort and ease of life. You know, and it's beautiful that even within our body, there's a group of people who've been gathering and meeting because of, of a woman, a single mom with chronic lupus, who's just in pain and doesn't know what to do. And there's people within our body that are fighting for her and getting together and meeting and saying, God forbid that our church drop the ball on this woman and we don't help in the areas where she is weak and she is hurting. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the flock of Christ. Leave no man behind. Semper Fi, all right? You know, um, beautiful that that is within our church. That we would be considerate and thoughtful of men without jobs and how can we help them out? And what, you know, how's food coming into their home? How's rent being paid? You know, how can we come alongside these people and, and help? What about those that are chronically depressed? Just in anguish of soul all the time, just in a hole all the time. Pray for them, encourage them, consider them, 
to stir them up. And it sure takes away from us a a consumer mentality of what am I going to get out of it here? You know, or why isn't anybody looking at me and coming to me? But that we would have a heart like Jesus and go out and serve and consider others. Deliberately reflecting and pondering on the people of our church, that we would have sensitivity and wisdom and insight and consideration towards them. Can you imagine if, you know, all 200 or so people that make up our church, something like that, was considerate of others and seriously prayerful and intentional and well thought out on how we can love and stir one another up towards love and good works. One man said, our church would be like a suburb of heaven. So God, move us to that in light of what he's already done for us. This ministry of stirring one another up or provoking one another or inciting one another, as we studied last week, it means it's necessary that we're together. It means it's necessary that we're regularly together. He goes on there in verse 25 that as we're together, we're exhorting one another. That means that we're opening our mouth to one another. While we're together, we're urging and encouraging and spurring and pushing and insisting to one another. Opening up our mouths, talking, encouraging. And while the gospel moves us towards that, as we look at all that wonderful practicality, it's still the gospel that moves us toward that. As you look at the end of verse 25, the wonderful good news of the return of Jesus incites us or moves us, compels us to be loving on each other even more as we see the day approaching. As we know that Jesus is coming back, as we know that the love for wickedness and the love for self is going to grow more and more, that there's going to be a great falling away that's going to happen, man, that moves us to want to consider one another and exhort one another all the more. As John tells us in 1 John, I think it's chapter 3, that we wouldn't be ashamed of him, or we wouldn't be ashamed at his coming. And so all of this loving one another, we're going to look at another passage in Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, says, if you were raised with Christ, let's hear some Bible pages flipping so we can get there in our, in our Bibles and read along and have it just seared into our mind. If you were raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you yourselves are to put off these things. Oh, I'm sorry, jump down to verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, not lying to one another since you've put off the old man and his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Then look at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And so in the first few verses of what we read, we have the gospel, we have um, what he's done and how he's seated us with Christ in heavenly places. That moves us to have a mind that is set on heaven, heavenly mindset. 
All of this good news moves us towards the moral imperative. These requirements, the laws, the obligations flow out of a revealing of the gospel. As we hear what Jesus has done for us, it moves us to want to do it towards others. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown was, a, was an 18th century commentary that uh, were written by three wonderful men. And they wrote in their commentary, Of ourselves, we can no more ascend than a bar of iron lift itself up from the earth. But the love of Christ is a powerful magnet to draw us up. The design of the gospel is not merely to give rules, but mainly to supply motives to holiness. And so there's a reason we read verses 1 through 4 of the good news of the gospel as it applies, uh, supplies motives to our holiness. And so then after knowing what Jesus has done in raising us up, verse 1, in sitting us at the right hand of God, in, in verse 3, our death but living and hidden in Christ, In verse 4, the wonderful gospel of appearing with Jesus again in glory. Then, after knowing all of that, we are moved and compelled to put to death our members, as verse 5 says, or mortify it. To make a corpse of it is what the language is literally saying. Make a corpse of all your lusts. And it goes through a list of sins there that are just very lustful, all kind of grouped in the same category. Sexual immorality or fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. It's all kind of wrapped up in this like sexual immorality or stuff that will lead you into sexual immorality. Lust. Put it to death. Kill it. As the 15th century Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And then not only killing those sins by the Spirit, Romans 8.13 tells us, it's by the Holy Spirit we can kill those things. But in verse 8, Colossians 3.8, it says, now we're to put off certain things, certain old nasty things that were part of the old man. And let's just read the list. We got anger and wrath, which can also be translated harshness towards one another. In Proverbs 15.1, we were told very wisely, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so in the idea of the gathering of the church where we're not to have anger with each other, we're not to be wrathful towards each other, soft answers towards one another in uh, fostering love here. Um, put off malice. Chrysostom, uh, the third century pastor, likened malice to a horse carrying anger for its rider. You can only imagine that. Just picture it, an angry horse just just trying to get you off, doing what he can to get you off of his back. Literally, get off my back. Uh, Chrysostom says, man, that's what malice is. Just that anger that you have for that person. And within the church, within the body, you think of that person that's, that's, man, there's malice there, put it off. In the same way that you would take an old garment and just take it off, an old, filthy, worn-out garment, you just lay it aside. You lay aside blasphemy, which is evil speaking. Filthy language out of your mouth. The context isn't so much impure conversation and dirty talk, but really it's more abusive language towards one another, in loving one another. We have the obligation to put off abusive language to one another. We put off, verse 9, lying to one another, since you put off all the old man with his deeds. And we've put on the new man. So we put off the old garments and we put on the new outfit, 
I was talking to Chris uh, Newell after church. He was commenting on my pink Western shirt, and he saw online that some country outfitter in Montana will outfit you for $1,000. And he was like, what's it take $1,000 to outfit me for, you know? And it's like, hey, the new man outfit. Man, it's that valuable, awesome, gorgeous outfit that Christ supplies. And we can put on that new man. And so here's the new man and the, and the, the articles of the new man to clothe yourself in, uh, the positive here. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Now, before we have stuff to do, what should I do? Put on tender mercies. Before that, there's good news that moves us to that. We're told that we are elect. How beautiful and wonderful is that, that the God of the universe elected us. He's made us holy in sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He calls us beloved or dearly loved. As Bengal says, elect, holy, beloved answers to the order of the things. Election from eternity precedes sanctification in time. The sanctified, feeling God's love, imitate it. And so as we're saved and sanctified, we feel God's love and what he's doing in our life, and we imitate that through putting on tender mercies. Literally, you got to love the literal translation, bowels of mercy. It speaks of you are feeling compassion so down deep, it actually starts inside of you first and works its way outward. Even in the oldest manuscripts, it's just bowels of mercy touching us in the innermost place, in the deepest levels of our personality. We have compassion towards one another. As the good Samaritan had compassion towards the one he found on the side of the road. We put on kindness in response to his kindness this is a kindness of heart that performs acts of generosity for the happiness of a person that would receive it. And so within the, you know, this necessitates a gathering, you guys. To be compassionate, it means that we're around each other. To be kind, we're giving, we're doing things, we're around each other. We put on humility here. Not a false humility, the scriptures speak of a, a false humility, which is uh, really just putting yourself down all the time. But a real godly humility is just seeing yourself in proper light of who God is. God is here, glorious, perfect, pure, wonderful, and, and man, apart from him, I'm nothing. It's by grace that there's anything good coming out of my life. And so put on that humility. Put on that meekness. Put on long-suffering and patience. One pastor said, how practical can this get? To say that you need to put on patience implies that you're going to be provoked. It assumes that there's going to be problems. Someone's going to rub you the wrong way. Now, how does someone rub you the wrong way if you're never together? If the scriptures just commanded us to just get saved and then go off and live out in the wilderness and don't ever talk to anybody or see anybody, then we wouldn't need to have commands like be compassionate towards one another be humble towards one another, be merciful towards one another, be patient towards one another. It assumes as we are together regularly, regularly, regular, regular meetings as a church, we're going to offend each other. We're going to let each other down. I'm going to offend you. I'm going to fail you. You're going to fail me. But the beauty of it is the gospel moves us to being patient with one another like Jesus is patient with us. Being long-suffering towards one another. He's long-suffering to us. 
being merciful as he's merciful to us. We live in a day where everybody is so quickly and easily offended. And while the offense will come, the Holy Spirit brings mercy, patience, endurance. 70 times 7, more than that even, Jesus says. Verse 13, bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint or a cause to blame against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, you guys, this is for you. And this is for me. Don't act like for a second, I've never had a cause to complain about anybody in the church. I get the phone calls. I get the emails. I get the meetings set up. All right? We're people. All right? The kingdom has not fully come yet. One day it will come and it'll be glorious. And we won't need to be bearing with each other anymore. But in this side of eternity, we do. And when we find reason to complain against one another or cause to blame somebody, we go back to what Jesus has done. And he tells the parables, you know, in Matthew 18 and 19, all the parables of mercy and forgiveness and for the forgiving servant who was forgiven a billion dollars worth of debt. And yet he wouldn't forgive somebody that owed him much less than that. As Christ forgave us, so we also must do. Now, in all of these wonderful articles of clothing that our new nature puts on that we've listed here, it's important to note that Jesus was the first in clothing himself in these things. He's the compassionate one. As he looked out over the multitudes and he saw that they were like sheep without shepherd, it says he was moved with compassion. And the language again is bowels of compassion from the inside out in his inner man. He was moved and, and was concerned and considered others. He led by example in that. He's kind as he reaches out and touches the leper who nobody wanted to be in a general region of. And yet he touched and healed a leper. Philippians 2 says he clothed himself in humility. He didn't esteem himself as better than anybody else. But he clothed himself in humility. The gospels speak of his gentleness. As he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're to be gentle to one another because our head, our chief, our shepherd, he was gentle and is gentle towards us. Jesus, long-suffering. He's got Peter rolling around him. You know, he's got Peter that's putting his foot in his mouth all the time. He's got Peter who denies him three times. And yet Jesus, always having the, the heart for reconciliation, was oh so patient had that beautiful breakfast of reconciliation in John 21, where he reconciles Peter and encourages Peter, even when Peter failed him multiple times. He's forgiving. As those men drove the, the stakes into his feet and into his hands, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In verse 14 of Colossians chapter 3, he says, Above all these things, Put on love, which is the bond of perfection or the bond that produces perfection. You've got all these other articles of the new man that you're putting on now that we walk in towards each other in our corporate gatherings and in our, in our times together. Even whether we're gathered or scattered, we're walking in these Colossians 3 attributes of a new man Christian. And yet the crowning 
accessory is love. It's the bond of perfection. Above all, put on love. As Peter says, above all these things, have a fervent love for one another as love covers a multitude of sins. That bond of perfection that love is refers to an upper garment which completes and keeps together the rest which without it would be loose and disconnected. Love is in a sense that, that strap on a lot of the coats, you know, where you tie it together and it keeps everything together rather than loose and disconnected. And so this whole nature of the new man must be acted out among other people. As last week we quoted Mark Deaver, Christianity is a corporate matter. And the Christian life can be fully realized only in relationship to others. Now, the beautiful thing is, while yes, these are glorious obligations that we have in light of the gospel, duties, responsibilities, but privileges, as I have this obligation to you, the wonderful thing is, is in the family, you have the obligation to me. We were at a home group a couple nights, uh, a couple weeks ago, and one woman just said, man, I need you guys. I need your love. I need your encouragement. I need your friendships. I need your help. I need your compassion. And we were all just like, man, that's a good kind of need that we have within the church. It's a glorious, wonderful thing that God has provided in his grace that we can have each other. Yes, there's duties and obligations that we have to our local church, but the beautiful thing is there's duties and obligations that the local church has to us as well. It's a visible, tangible picture of the gospel. The church is the gospel in action. And you can come and be comforted. You can come and have mercy shown to you. You can come and people will be compassionate to you. We're a family. We're a body. We're a building. Each one of us living stones in that building. And as we look over in 1 John chapter 3, go ahead and flip over uh, to 1 John 3.10. says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And so just a good sobering word, a warning, a, a, just examine our hearts, Lord. Am I not walking in righteousness? Am I, am I saved, Lord? Am I walking without love towards my brother? Am I ever showing my Christian brother that I love them? Am I harboring bitterness and wrath and unforgiveness in my heart? It's a dangerous place to be. Verse 11 says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because the works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. I was reading this morning a Spurgeon sermon, and he said that there was a, a newspaper article of someone had wondered if Spurgeon had died, uh, and the police called you know, around Spurgeon's house, and are you still alive? Or, and he said, yes, I'm alive. I've been loving the brethren. That's a great way to know that we're alive. So true that as we're loving one another, we know that our spirit has been awakened to spiritual newness of life. And it goes on to say there in 1 John 
14, 314. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life biting in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. By this we know love. Or excuse me, moving on. Looks like I posted that twice there. Verse 17, but whatever has, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Man, what a, an encouragement to us that our love for one another, it's going to be shown. It's going to be visible through times of being together, through times of serving one another through times of considering one another. Interesting story I heard this week, similar to that of the murder of Kitty Genovese, as I read her story earlier, but it was 40 years earlier in the late 1920s when an interesting case was brought before the courts of Massachusetts. It was a case concerning a man who'd been walking along a pier and he tripped under a, um, over a rope and fell into the cold, deep waters of the icy Atlantic. He came up sputtering and screaming for help. His arms and his legs were chopping at the water, for he never learned how to swim. This repeats itself three to four times of him bobbing up and down in the water. His friends finally heard him some distance away, and they ran to the pier, but they were too far away to get there in time. Ironically, however, within just a few yards of this drowning person, there was a young man lounging on a deck chair, sunbathing. Not only could he hear clearly, this pleading of the man in the water, but he himself was an excellent swimmer. And yet he did absolutely nothing to help the drowning man. He didn't even go get up from his chair, but he merely turned his chair to watch with indifference as this man finally sank beneath the water for the final time. As you can appreciate, the family of this man who drowned was so upset by the monstrous display of indifference, they filed suit against him. And in the outcome, they lost their case. With the measure of reluctance, the court of Massachusetts ruled that the man sunbathing on the pier had no legal responsibility to attempt to save the drowning man's life. Now, it's interesting, as I took a first aid class, not so recently, <laughs> hope nothing happens to you while you're here, um, they were telling us about the Good Samaritan Law. And that once you now have, nowadays, now in 2000, it was probably 2008 when I took my last one, uh, at that point, now that you've been educated and you know how to help people, you have the obligation, you have the responsibility that if somebody around you is hurting, to, to be the good Samaritan and to go and to help them and to lay your life down if need be in, in rescuing them. And so it is for the church. You guys remember back in the Genesis account of Cain and Abel when Cain murdered his brother Abel, the Lord found him and said, where's your brother? And he very cynically said, am I my brother's keeper? And we just read about that in 1 John. That's a dangerous heart to have. Do I have to take care of my brother? Do I have to love my brother? Do I have to be concerned about my brother? Do I have to consider my brother? Yes, you do. The gospel moves us to consider one another. As Jesus, the Lord of all creation, considered us. We're to bear one another's burden, and that fulfills the law of Christ. In 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. How does he not love his brother whom he's seen? 
If he doesn't love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen, John tells us. This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Vintage Church, written by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashear, says, Denying the possibility of isolated individual Christians who have no desire to be in the fellowship of a local church, John Calvin said that every member of the invisible church belongs to the visible church. If his words are true, then many people are either in sin or worse, still wrongly believe they are saved when they are not. If they were, it would be evident in part by, their lo- by loving their brothers and sisters, which means getting to know them, to serve them, and to learn from them in love. The New Testament church is a gathering church. And the New Testament church is a loving church. It's a church that is calculated and given over to considering one another. Lest we be like these men and women who sat by and knew of a woman being stabbed and knew of a man drowning and never lifted a finger to even cry for help. Let that not be said of our church. May God, in light of his grace and what he's done for us and the effort that he's put forth to save us, lead us to repent of independent, self-sufficient, self-ruling hearts that would say, am I my brother's keeper? Solomon, who was at one point called the wisest man that ever lived, then Jesus came on the scene and said, one better than Solomon is here. But Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes of the beauty of fellowship. When he said, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken." And so may the Lord knit us together, more than a threefold cord. How about a 200-something strand cord? The strength that is in that. Speaking of cords, this one connected to my microphone is driving me crazy. As we have the worship team come on up, it was interesting in reading a book by Charles Jefferson from the late 1800s called Building of the Church, where he referred to the three different aspects that we've really been looking at in this series of the vision and the mission of upreach and inreach and outreach. And how interesting that in this second purpose of loving each other, as we're loving each other and considering one another, stirring one another up to love and good works, inciting one another, provoking one another, then God is glorified and God is worshiped. As he says, their lack of the spirit of brotherly affection incapacitates them for the worship of God. Their worship would be mechanical and unsatisfying if they have no brotherly affection. But Christians who are interested in one another invariably become more interested in God. Loving men is the only way to grow in the grace of loving God. A set of people who are not interested in one another will not be likely in the house of prayer to worship God with glad and exultant hearts or in the field of Christian service to work effectively for the advancement of the kingdom. Inreach is for the aim of upreach. And inreach brings about great upreach, great worship. He also said really quickly that 
that inreach can spur us on to more outreach. When love is kindled in the hearts of church members for one another, it is a fire which burns its way to the end of the world. And so in this church, we pray today, Lord God, that as we've looked at some scriptures, that just move us towards love, compassion, tender mercies, brotherly affection. Lord, that you would light a flame in our church that would burn to the end of the world, God. Lord, the privilege that we have of gathering together and speaking to one another, encouraging one another, asking one another questions, hearing of each other's struggles and temptations and weaknesses and fears, studying each other. Lord, let your spirit just move in our body, in our church, in our flock, in this temple. Lord, bring about revival in our community through Christians loving each other. As, as Jesus says, they will know you are Christians by the love that you have for one another. Anywhere in this church, God, where there's maybe even in this room, anger towards somebody in this room, in this church, bitterness, filthy speaking about another person, just harsh speaking and bitterness. Lord, bring the Spirit's conviction into our hearts, Lord. We want to repent of that today. And Lord, as we worship, as we clothe in communion, and as we examine the blood and the body of Christ, we, we think about what you did and we proclaim your death and burial and resurrection. We think of how you are the, the forerunner and the best example of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering and kindness and goodness. We get our eyes on you and we say, Lord, make this church like you. Let the body resemble so much the head. Let the flock take on the characteristics of the shepherd. Let the bride live out just the, the fruit of having a groom that lays his life down for her. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you come forward? You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.